0: Hello and welcome to this episode of the New Books Network. My name is Christian Axbo Nielsen, and I am associate professor of history and human security at Aarhus University in Denmark. My guest today, Ivor Sokolic, received his PhD in political science in 2016 at the School of Slavonic and East European Studies at University College London. He subsequently worked at the European Institute at the London School of Economics and Political Science. He has recently been appointed as lecturer in politics and international relations at the University of Hertfordshire in the United Kingdom. Today, we will be discussing Ivor's book, International Courts and Mass Atrocity Narratives of War and Justice in Croatia, published by Palgrave Macmillan in 2019. This book explores the effects of international and national transitional justice in Croatia, and in particular, the consequences of the work of the United Nations. International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, the ICTY. In his book, Ivor casts a critical analytical gaze on how and why universal human rights norms become distorted or undermined when they reach local publics. Ivor, good morning and welcome to the program.
1: Uh, good morning, and thank you very much. Thank you uh, for inviting me. It's uh, a great privilege, uh, not only to be in the New Books Network, but also to be to be speaking to you, because I'm also very familiar with your own incredible uh, set of works. Well, thank you very much, Ivor, and
0: I look forward really to discussing this book, which I, I have enjoyed reading twice, and every time I read it, I'm getting more and more out of it. So let me start by asking you, why was it that you set out to write this particular book? And and what do you believe uh, you have accomplished by doing so? Uh,
1: well, I, I, I set out it was a, it was a continuation of my uh, PhD work. And I, I think and I think that was a, obviously a long journey where actually I had a curiosity almost since I was a child um, uh, as a Croat who had lived in Croatia and abroad uh, during and after the war. So I had this interesting perspective where Uh, as I was growing up, I also saw a nation being built and I was exposed to these narratives of nation building. But then also being abroad, I had an opportunity to sort of question them and to see these sort of slightly different perspectives on it. Um, And and that's essentially what led me to be interested in politics. And then later on, my master's dissertation to my PhD to want to research how Croatian society is coping in the aftermath of conflict. And I think what I sought to accomplish, and I can be, I think I can be quite honest about this because I've sort of reflected on it a lot myself, is during my PhD already, I really wanted to show that the ICTY in Croatia did some good. I wanted to show that there was something positive in this despite the amount of negative press it was getting. potentially, I was quite naive. I think I, I also recall uh, at the end of my PhD, before I you know, started writing the book, uh, that already one of my PhD examiners on my defense, uh, one of the first lines that said this was that after reading my PhD, uh, they were thoroughly depressed. Um, so I suppose I sought to try to show some of those positive effects of transitional justice. And instead, what I got at the end of it was quite a complicated picture of how narratives interact uh, in in a, in society at the everyday level.
0: Well, I could certainly sympathize uh, on two levels, both as as a person who has grown up in in two different societies as well. In, in my case, uh, the somewhat easier uh, and relatively conflict free uh, example of the United States and Denmark, but also and and full disclosure here for those listening, uh, as a, a former employee of uh, the ICTY, it's really interesting and uh, timely and necessary for me to see someone who, uh, like you, has a, uh, I think, benevolent and uh, overall uh, critical uh, view of the ICTY really try to to deal with uh, what uh, the consequences of its work uh, were in Croatia. You start out in your book by, by telling uh, your readers that you're adopting what you call a novel methodological approach. Um, could you tell us a bit about this pro- approach? Um, how and, and why did you arrive at at this particular approach? And and what benefits do you think that your book and its approach offer compared to other methodologies in similar works focused on transitional justice and the ICTY?
1: Uh Yeah, so a, a lot of what I was trying to do with the book was in some ways look at a problem uh, that had been tackled by scholars before, uh, this notion of norms and transitional justice. Um, But I think a lot of what I've been lacking thus far was actually managing to capture where norms are best observed. So I I was arguing that this was an interactions between individuals. So the book is based on a series of focus groups that I conducted uh, with uh, members of war veterans groups in Croatia, with pensioners and with high school history teachers as sort of three different segments Uh, of of society that were all in some ways relevant to the transitional uh, justice process. Um, Now, I also then try to analyze this data by using narrative analysis. So what we see in a lot of uh, transitional justice research is if we have an interview transcript or even a focus group, um, a lot of our analysis will focus on a single statement that someone said. Uh, whereas uh, what I argue is that if we want to see uh, how norms are exhibited, we have to follow the full sequence of interaction. So I employed narrative analysis to look at how uh, meaning and norms were constructed across a whole sequence of, uh, of communication between individuals uh, in a group. Um, and then to add a certain layer, layer of rigor to this, I attempted to uh, adapt um, qualitative comparative analysis, uh, which is um, a technique that uses Boolean algebra. So in other words, truth tables um, uh, to, to come up with conclusions um, in order to see if I could actually see any patterns essentially in the data to see if maybe some groups were more open uh, to transitional justice uh, than others. And in many ways, this was an experiment. So for example, I, I learned some lessons here that maybe qualitative comparative analysis is not quite that adaptable to this type to this type of data, but narrative analysis actually holds a lot of hope. And, and certainly that's sort of where I've continued with my research is to try to see if I can make interaction, the unit of analysis uh, in future research by focusing more on these sequences uh, of interaction.
0: You talked about these uh, three groups of people that you uh, chose for your focus groups. Uh, I'm just curious: were there any other groups that you considered uh, a, a having as a focus group, that, but that you discarded for one reason or another?
1: Um, I think there were there were many. Uh, I, I, I think often in research we we have to make some sacrifices in, in terms of also you know unfortunately uh, time limitations. And I thought these three provided the best uh, insights. Uh, that I could get, uh, I think probably the biggest group that I would have wanted to research would have been uh, young people. Um, so to actually examine, uh, for example, individuals younger than thirty, certainly essentially younger than twenty-five, and you know with appropriate ethical approval, I think the most interesting segment would have been anyone younger than eighteen. Uh, I think that you know if I look at Who I spoke to, you actually end up with uh, older segments of society other than the high school history teachers who are a bit younger. So what I think would have been particularly interesting would have been to have a much younger people. Um, But there we do have questions uh, of ethics in particular, and feasibility as well. Um, Civil society groups, uh, such as members of human rights NGOs, were also uh, very high up on the list, but I actually decided to discard them because a lot of research has already involved them so there was great research out there on Croatia and the former Yugoslavia that I drew on to come up with many of my conclusions and I supplemented it with some of these interviews that with segments of society who had not been interviewed thus far not 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 at least to to this extent
0: right so in in a way we're hearing voices that at least an english-speaking public might not be that familiar with and i think for me um, even though i do read uh croatian and and follow the debates in croatia uh, i think that one of the um, perhaps enjoyable is is not the right word given that some of the uh quotations or comments are are very aggressive and as as you already noted uh to some readers uh certainly depressing uh, but one of the things that really propels, I think, readers through your book is particularly these often, uh, uh, interesting and, and sometimes even quirky, uh, at times, uh, humorous, uh, anecdotes and and quotes that you have harvested from, from your work with these, um, uh, uh focus groups. So I, I, I really in, enjoyed that aspect of the book. Um. Your book casts a keen light on the shortcomings of international criminal justice as a way of affecting and changing nationalist narratives about traumatic historical events, such as the dissolution of Yugoslavia and, in the case of Croatia, the war of independence known in that country as the Homeland War. Can you speak to the expectations that the, you know, for lack of a better term, uh, in quotation marks, international community had in in this respect, I mean, what, what were we uh, expecting to see as a result of what was going on in The Hague uh, in terms of changing narratives in Croatia?
1: Well, uh, yeah, I mean, that, that's a huge question, right? Um, I think to start, uh, the international community did not initially have a strategy for this. Uh, I, I think if we look at how transitional justice strategies were come up for the former Yugoslavia, especially the ICTY, uh, a lot of the focus of the international community was first and foremost to lead to a cessation, cessation in violence, to foster democratic change, and then with the establishment of the ICTY to start some kind of process of post-conflict justice, but strictly legal uh, justice in the sense of you know, uh, bringing people to trial in courtrooms. Um, so I- I'm not sure they were necessarily even aware that there was a need to engage with the local public because, for example, the ICTY outreach office was only set up quite late. Now, I think it's important to note here that this, this is not the case for all international actors. There are brilliant examples of international actors who were acutely aware of the importance of narratives in, in any conflict, and especially in the former Yugoslavia. I think um, uh, the example of UNTV, in the, in the Balkans and the UNTV project and a lot of the work they've produced, which now the Imperial War Museum and Catherine Baker uh, here in the UK are working on and trying to promote, really shows that within the UN, there was a plur- plurality of voices and there were individuals who were very aware that we they had to work on the narratives on the ground. Now, this idea that a tribunal should also speak to a local public actually came late on in the project. Uh, and then it faced the problem that these effects at the legal level do not always translate to the political and cultural levels as expected. Um, Notions of, for example, reconciliation were even added to the ICTY's list of aims as it was already working. And and this actually created a list of aims that was never actually going to be achievable. Um, It's actually here we can we can argue that it's debatable whether a trial alone can ever change these narratives at the everyday level. Um, and this case study would actually argue that they cannot, uh, but perhaps that solutions exist outside of the legal realm or alongside it, so alongside courtrooms. So here we can look at potentially truth commissions or fact-finding efforts, uh, for example, the archives that can be built um, that are you know, not understood as propagators of a certain version of the truth. Uh, but more as spaces where the past can be debated, uh, you know, interpreted, deliberated on. Um, and you know, these facets uh, of archives can actually aid in the creation of alternative narratives in a society. So I, I think maybe initially there was a bit of a naivety or certainly the voices in the international community that were strongest uh, were not thinking about this, but as time passed, they did become more aware of it and they did start to work on it.
0: Would it be a fair characterization um, based on on your book and and also kind of paraphrasing some of what you have uh, just been saying now to say that uh, your uh, judgment or your opinion, as it were, is that the ICTY uh, performed uh, necessary and important functions, uh, but that um, they didn't always... Uh, get disseminated or assimilated into Croatia the way the ICTY or other international actors had assumed?
1: Um, yes, that, that's that's completely correct. And uh, I would say that um, it's actually a more complex picture in many ways because we do need to also contextualize the ICTY. Um, it, it, it's, it's an experiment of sorts in itself. Uh, there wasn't really any tribunal it could look to in the past other than potentially Nuremberg and Tokyo uh, to look for lessons that could have been learned. Um, So really when they're trying to disseminate, they're not really sure of what this might look like. They're not sure of the headwinds they're going to face. And in the case of Croatia, these headwinds are particularly strong because as much as the Croatian state uh, for the most part cooperated, uh, they were very eager to actually domestically uh, advocate for narratives That were against uh, the ICTY. And actually, I think uh, something to be added here is also that we we still don't know actually how to engage with publics appropriately when it comes to legal narratives. So even when the ICTY was trying, they were often alienating publics because publics felt that uh, they were not legitimate um, uh, participants in this process. Um, they felt like they were alienated from this legal language. And this made it, again, very hard uh, to, to push any messages across or promote any messages they wanted to promote, whereas uh, local uh, civil society groups like war veterans groups or um, the government were particularly adept at connecting to Croatian culture and repertoires of communication in Croatia that, that then resonated and their messages resonated much more powerfully.
0: Right, and, and you talk a lot in your book about how uh, particularly, certain groups, such as the veterans groups, have an inherent kind of legitimacy uh, and status at the domestic level. Uh, of course, in part because of their role, uh, the way they're perceived, and the way they construct themselves as defenders of an independent Croatia, uh, but also, you know, right out of the starting block because they are able to position their narratives in a domestic uh, national or nationalist content uh, or context rather uh, as compared to uh, international actors who are uh, disadvantaged in that sense because they are perceived as uh, and and not of course always incorrectly as being remote uh, and or arrogant towards uh, the publics they're trying to reach out to right
1: yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, it's, it's exactly that. And, and there are a lot of lessons to be learned by, uh, well, by conditionality uh, that was placed on the process and the connecting of this legal process to a political process, uh, for example. And I think uh, Croatian politicians were actually very adept at, uh, you know, manipulating a lot of a lot of a lot of these dynamics for their own purposes to appeal to a domestic audience.
0: You use the term right there, conditionality, which um, uh, is quite important in the context of the relationship between not only ICTY and and uh, Croatia, but also uh, w- in respect to other uh, former Yugoslav republics. Could you just uh, elaborate briefly on that term? Uh,
1: yes, yeah, so I think um, it, basically the the connecting of uh, the transitional justice process to in the case of Croatia, uh, it would be to uh, EU accession, uh, was a particularly successful way of uh, essentially forcing Croatia um, to undertake a transitional justice process. Um, And we see this in two particular ways. We see it in that they uh, essentially sent generals to The Hague. um, And then we also see it in that they did set up uh, domestic war crimes trials um that you know had a lot of problems, but they were all, there were also a lot of successes there. Um, and certainly there was pressure, international pressure to, to do more of that. So uh, arguably this would not have happened without conditionality. Um, unfortunately, the other on the other hand, uh, what happens with conditionality is that you actually see uh, all of a sudden uh, the, the transitional justice process uh, is very much seen as a political process rather than a judicial one. Um, so what we're seeing is uh, the process is, is subordinates justice to political institutions, and therefore I think as Subotic writes, uh, this sort of empties law of its meaning, meaning, and this erodes the potential for cre- creating stability and uh, reconciliation. Um, now, now the biggest problem in Croatia, and this you know this is sort of where the where the book. Uh, hasn't really, really had time to catch up yet with with more recent developments, is that once Croatia joined the EU, conditionality disappears. Um, And all of a sudden, you sort of see how hollow a part of the process was, and the erosion of, for example, minority rights, uh, and domestic war crimes trials, and so on, because all of a sudden, there is no international pressure on Croatia
0: to conform. Right. And uh, you uh, had a nice reference there to Jelena Subotic's book, Hijack Justice, which I know uh, you cite quite frequently uh, in your work. And and of course, her uh, one could say overriding thesis is that even when uh, actors, state actors such as Croatia and Serbia cooperate with the ICTY, uh, they manage often to do so for the wrong reasons. That is to say, they go through the process mechanically they present it to their publics as something they are obligated to do and all of the transitional justice, um, fringe benefits, which, uh, you and I are, are interested in things such as actually coming to terms with the past, uh, and in particular with one's own perpetrators, uh, is, uh, either, uh, absent or is in fact explicitly, uh, militated against through, uh, statements by for example the Croatian or Serbian governments about the uh, heroic deeds of those that whom they are unfortunately forced to extradite to the Hague
1: right exactly and and, and what the, the result of this is that Croatia com- complied with almost all demands uh, uh, put on it by the international community at the same time it managed to retain um the sort of let's say the, the the original understanding of the conflict which is quite one-sided and very much portrays Croatia as the victim as defend as a defender exclusively and as um as a state that committed no war crimes um so they both sort of they managed to kind of succeed on both fronts in, in that sense
0: I think that's that's a, a great point and and that kind of segues to my next question where I want to talk uh, a little bit about how victim perpetrator dichotomies have been collectively constructed in the Croatian national consciousness and in memory politics uh, since the 1990s. Um, I think it's a rather obvious point that in nearly all armed conflicts, both uh, civil wars and international conflicts, we see that there is a tendency both uh, uh, among the actors involved, but often also among international actors to portray, uh, certain conflicts as, uh, uh, or certain actors as the, uh, for lack of a better term, good guys and the other side as the bad guys. So we get uh, these, these very stark dichotomies. Um, could you explain a little bit, um, uh, and, and you, you feel free to, to kind of, uh, caricaturize it a bit, um, uh, how how would you summarize uh, briefly the dominant Croatian view of the Homeland War?
1: Yeah, I mean, it, like you said, it, it, it's um, it, it's it's best to kind of briefly summarize because uh, there are a lot of facets to it now, and they've almost been added to as time has. Uh, gone on. Uh, The the biggest ones are first, it's Croatian defense and Croats as defenders. So Croatian war veterans are not known as war veterans. Uh, They're called defenders. Um, And this is based on this dichotomy that Croats and Croatia were defenders and Serbs and Serbia were aggressors. Um, And this is important, actually, because Croatian war crimes are therefore interpreted as not being war crimes, because they were crimes committed in self-defense and uh, they're therefore seen as lesser crimes by the public. Um, there's also a notion of victimhood of Croats as uh, bare armed or even barefooted was a common a common sort of a word that was used as opposed to the prepared and well armed uh, Serbs, um, and this is constructed around several focal points such as the destruction of Vukovar and also the the more symbolic destruction of Dubrovnik, um, and then we also see tropes uh, like like the sort of the the Baka the grandmother with a rifle that sort of captures a lot of this, uh, so it's a construct that can explain that war crimes committed against the Serb population, especially uh, during and after Operation Storm, um, turns these crimes into crimes of self-defense, which again fit into this notion of Croatian defense and victimhood. So the idea is that a Croatian soldier uh, only shot civilians, or in this case, bakas, grandmothers who were left behind, um, because the these Serb civilians were armed with weapons that Serb forces left behind because the Serbs were so well armed. And it was an act of uh, self-defense because the Croatian soldiers in the public side barely had any any weapons, uh, which means that these were not war crimes uh, in the eyes of the public, Um and I think, you know, there we can see how this dichotomy actually has quite a negative and dangerous outcome.
0: I think that's, that's a really interesting point. And um, uh, I, I also found it fascinating that you uh, elaborated a bit more on this in the book by talking about how some of the um, cr- crimes which uh, the Croatian army and uh, police uh, committed against uh, Serb civilians... Uh, not only are not seen as crimes, but uh, are seen as kind of acts of passion that they, in a way, got carried away with themselves because they were doing the right thing and liberating Croatia. Um, And then, of course, um, things happen in the heat of the moment. Um, and, And then this completely uh, fascinating uh, metaphor uh, which recurs throughout the book that you just uh, gave us the, the baka, the grandmother with the, the rifle um, uh, maybe you could also say a little bit about uh, the gender aspect here because um, to the extent that the Serbs are constructed as well, even Serb grandmothers uh, living in a village are armed to the teeth what does that tell us about uh, Croatian innocence and Croatian, let us say, masculinity.
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a brilliant question. It's, it's, it's you know this gender aspect is one that actually I, I think remains underexplored in the book. Also, considering I spoke to uh, um, a large number of female war veterans, actually. Um, and and yeah i think i think what it actually does is that by constructing it across these gender lines um it actually dehumanizes the other side even further and and something that does not get spoken about a lot and and there are authors like Clark, for example, and, and more authors now coming up, he was a brilliant PhD student, is writing about sexual violence in, in the conflicts in the former Yugoslavia. And what we see here is one way that even, uh, you know, across gender lines, we see dehumanization happen uh, to be able to say that it almost doesn't matter uh, that, that you know, this was a civilian, that this was an elderly civilian. So you know, we're actually, actually symbolically speaking about a grandmother, but it's actually dehumanizing it to the level saying, well, they were all fighters. They were, they were all there uh, to kill us, whereas our defenders, our poor defenders were you know, unarmed. So it really just kind of creates a more polarized dichotomy between victim and aggressor, where the person committing the war crime is portrayed as the victim.
0: Right. And, and another metaphor um, or image uh, that I really uh, liked in uh, your book um, is uh, the way in which you talk about um, a localized um, folk theory of law and how um, the reception of uh, the legal findings of the ICTY gets filtered through this uh, folk theory of law. So can can you elaborate a bit on that?
1: Uh, yes, of course. And I, and I have to I have to actually thank um, uh, my, my PhD supervisor for this, because it, this came up in a conversation between us um, and, and we were trying to sort of theorize, how do we how do we explain what is going on here? That all of these individuals have a, quite a convincing logic, quite a convincing legal logic almost to explain why uh, certain war crimes are not actually war crimes. Um and um and yeah, the term we came up with was this notion of a localized uh, sort of folk theory of law, which logically makes sense, but it's based on incorrect assumptions. Um and actually we, we see this in survey results as well. So there are survey re- you know, representative survey results that, that show that uh you know they ask questions like: was it possible for the Croatian side to commit war crimes in a defensive war? And um, and, you know, like a high proportion, sort of like about 30 percent of people say, no, it was not it's not possible to commit any war crimes at all uh, in a defensive war. Um, So what what individuals do here, and especially with a lot of complicated legal concepts and command responsibilities, probably the biggest one here is that they start to uh, see uh, certain parts of the narrative of victimhood, such as this sort of unorganized, uh, unarmed uh, defense, as a mitigating circumstance that actually, in their eyes, then justifies certain types of crimes. And um, they then develop their own legal reasoning. And it actually starts with individuals will first admit that they do not understand a concept, a legal concept, then they outline a premise uh, for their definition of the concept. Uh, and then they argue for why they believe you know, Croatian soldiers, for example, or policemen were not guilty of a certain crime. Um, so what they actually do is they're constructing their understanding of the situation through this mixture of law, uh, politics, and emotions. Um, and then what we see is actually they're, you know, they they think they're taking ICTY interpretations. Uh, to justify their views of why Croatian soldiers were justified in their actions.
0: Right, it's and it's it, sometimes it, it's it's a really fascinating way in which people are are kind of uh, logically appropriating in, in their own uh, minds concepts uh, that uh, so, such as joint criminal enterprise or command responsibility that have been devised and developed in in the Hague uh, and then essentially trying to use them to to square the circle so that they can get back to the original narrative, uh, which suits their their own situation. Now, you mentioned uh, your PhD advisor. Un- unless that person is currently in a witness protection program, can you mention uh, that advisor's name?
1: Oh, apologies. <laughs> I thought I thought I did. Yeah, uh, a professor now, Eric Gordy. Uh,
0: and I'll just say uh, that um, uh, for those who are familiar with Eric Gordy's uh, research on uh, particularly uh, Serbia um, and uh, its politics and culture in the 1990s. I'm almost, Ivor, a little bit surprised that you didn't uh, coin the term a localized turbo folk uh, theory of law. <laughs> uh, but perhaps you can do that in, in, a, in a future book. That would be quite entertaining, I think. Um, now, compared to some works on, on related topics, uh, your book, makes actually relatively few references to past historical episodes of mass violence and atrocities in Croatia or or Yugoslavia. Uh, this may be my own prejudices as a historian uh, that are coming to the fore because we, of course, are continuously fascinated uh, in a very depressing way by the way in which narratives of mass atrocities and popular uh, remembrances of past atrocities, particularly as regards, uh, Yugoslavia during the second world war, uh, were instrumentalized and manipulated, uh, during the wars of Yugoslav succession in the 1990s. So can you perhaps speak a little bit to the, the this point, uh, to the extent that it came up in your research and, and to what extent have, have, um, Uh, these Croatian narratives of victimhood also been projected backwards into time?
1: Uh, Yeah, it's it's a great question. And I think, um, and they definitely have. um, I mean, to to a certain extent, I think uh, Klasic uh, talks about this a lot and and, um, uh, writes about this, this notion that the way in Croatia that the Second World War is now being interpreted to a certain extent is through the prism of the 1990s conflict. So it's almost as if now, the narratives about the 90s are actually being projected backwards through history to explain other other events that came before it. Um, One reason that I don't deal with with this topic, uh, at least not directly, is that because there are so many works that already do a a great job, a better job of of doing this. Um, Also, at the core, my book is very much about the current process of transitional justice and especially related institutions like the icty so methodologically it made sense then to limit my scope conditions up to the most recent conflict um but of course it's true that processes of transitional justice uh and memory are much more complex than that and and they interact with with other memories uh that 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 are present so so it's always it's it's almost you know analytically we can try to do this but in reality uh you know it's very hard to isolate this um I do think that the book has one clear finding in this regard uh, relating specifically to Croatian victimhood. And that is that, yeah, like I said, Croatian victimhood uh, or the, you know, sort of being projected into the past. uh, So the memory of the most recent conflict now is used to interpret all of Croatian history before that. Um, And one, this is possible. or One reason why this is possible is because Croatian victimhood in the 1990s is almost universally accepted. And therefore, to a certain degree, it is unifying. However, notions of Croatian victimhood from the Second World War and during communism are not agreed upon by all of society. In fact, this is often a much more polarizing issue in Croatian society is this notion of who were the victims in the Second World War and in communism and, and what was the extent of uh, victimhood? So actually what, what, um, what, we, what I saw was the one big argument that happened in my focus groups was over victimhood during communism and not over the most recent conflict. So individuals would actually agree that the most recent conflict, uh, w- you know, w- was a defensive war for Croatia, but they would disagree strongly about communism and the Second World War. So, if I'm analyzing the narratives coming out of the 1990s, I can actually get a good idea of how Croatian society and narratives are being built on the sort of unifying uh, memory of the most recent conflict.
0: Mm, that's that's really interesting. Now we're we're obviously having this conversation. Uh, in the autumn of, of 2021, and and that means that we're actually coming up among other things on the 30th anniversary of of uh, Vukovar, um, the siege and, and, and fall of Vukovar. Um, but on the other hand, that also means that we are three decades since the declaration of Croatian independence and the Homeland War, of course, ended in 1995. Um, why do you think that there's such a strong pervasive and, 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 and continuing fear uh, about uh, uh, this existence of, of Croatia, what we call ontological insecurity, the fear that that Croatia would cease to exist even if it admitted atrocities that were committed by the Croatian side during the Homeland War.
1: Yeah, so th- that's an interesting topic. And I've really enjoyed some of the more recent writing. I mean, especially, again, you know, Jelena Subotic comes up over and over again uh, on this topic in the former Yugoslavia. And um, I would say that um, you know, the ICTY ultimately did not criminalize or try to criminalize the Croatian state or the Croatian nation. In fact, the whole premise of the ICTY uh, was to criminalize specific figures. Uh, so individuals to make it clear that these were individuals committing crimes rather than, you know, groups or, or states. Um, And, and also, you know, um, if if we look at the track record of the ICTY, um, you know, there, there was, there, there were no guilty verdicts in the end for crimes committed, you know, by Croats uh, of Croats for crimes committed in Croatia. Um, But it was taken on by politicians Uh, as an opportunity to to mobilize certain segments of the population, especially uh, war veterans. Um, So what what we see is that war veterans groups, uh, like I said, this particularly strong part of Croatian civil society, uh, becomes particularly concerned with this issue. um, And especially so when the uh, center-right uh, Hadeze, uh, the Croatian Democratic Union, is in, is in opposition, uh, they, they would come out and demonstrate and protest in great numbers. And I think we can also then see the slight disappearance of this ontological insecurity over time, especially as, as the Hadeze is in power. So what, one example is, if we want to talk about the verdicts that probably uh, criminalized, let's say, or had the greatest potential to criminalize um, the Croatian state, they would be the verdicts for the Croats in Bosnia that showed that there was a direct line from Zagreb to force, Croat forces in uh, Bosnia-Herzegovina. And we actually see a relative lack of protests in comparison to the ones we saw before, even though these are these are verdicts uh, that, that, that sort of stuck, uh, should we say. Um, so what, what we, to a certain extent, see is all of a sudden these segments are not being mobilized. And to a certain degree, also the sort of young nation building project, um, which started in the 1990s, has also sort of evolved a bit more. So there's a bit less insecurity there. But I think this was very much a case of, uh, of opportunism on the behalf of politicians a lot of the time that mobilized the rest of the public.
0: Right. And I think with respect to the the, the Bosnian Croats who were convicted and the very strong words in the ICTY's judgments in that case uh, as regards Croatia's role in the Bosnian War. Uh, I, I, I would conjecture that the uh, reason that it, uh, to some extent, uh, with the exception of the the notorious incident of uh, Slobodan Praljak's suicide, which you also deal with in your book, the the reason why it doesn't register as much uh, in Croatia domestically is that, um, ironically, uh, the, even the Croat nationalists are often capable of compartmentalizing, um, uh, Bosnian Croats as, uh, some kind of peripheral phenomenon in the same way that, uh, Belgrade, uh, treats the Bosnian Serbs. Would you agree with that?
1: Yes, com- completely. And I think there's this sort of nested Orientalism that, that, it, that, that sort of occurs here. And especially with regards to, to Bosnia, uh, that there is this creation of uh, a, a, an other uh, that is Bosnia that is uh, often portrayed almost literally in, in transcripts as a savage uh, uncivilized as opposed as opposed to the you know the civilization in, in Zagreb um, and therefore what went on there was crazy and not a part of what we were doing here uh, so even then when you get a verdict that actually I mean actually has this incredible potential to undermine the notion of a defensive war in uh, you know on the Croatian side because this was uh, you know proven aggression in, in what is another state um it's easy then for individuals, for the public, for the media to disregard it because Bosnia is this other crazy, like like you said, peripheral uh, place uh, where people do things that civilized people don't do. So it's outside of our control, um, and it became very easy to disregard. I mean, it's it, I would I would argue that in comparison to previous episodes, it barely registered um, in in the Croatian media the way. Other verdicts and arguably smaller verdicts registered in the past, and same with the public.
0: Right, right. I I, I would agree with that as well. Um, I was somewhat and 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 also pleasantly surprised to see that uh, you uh, state that uh, teachers stood out as the group that felt particularly positive about the ICTY. W- why do you think that's the case, and and does this give us uh, those of us hope? Um, those of us who believe in and work to disseminate the the findings of the tribunal.
1: I mean, I I want to say yes, but again, I feel once I went into the field, I I was um, and actually in some of my research since then, I, I've I've seen the opposite. So I don't think um, in many ways it's not surprising that you know high school history teachers um, are quite positive positive about uh, the transitional justice process because. Generally speaking, we do see certain segments of societies uh, who are who are more open to transitional justice. Uh, often, it is you know, well-educated, urban, uh, and young populations uh, that tend to be a bit more positive about it. Um, especially because of conditionality, these are also populations that attached quite a lot of importance to uh, EU accession. So here, we can potentially see some benefit of time the two processes together um and 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 so so it's not surprising to see this segment be positive because they were a bit younger and they were generally urban um so there is hope in that yes i think there's a big worry and that is why do people like this not speak up so Mm -hmm. why is it that when I speak to a high school history teacher and they are telling me they're very positive about this process, but they also tell me they never discuss uh, the most recent conflicts of the homeland war in class, because it's not worth the hassle, because it's not worth what um, you know what grief they're going to get from parents or from their superiors. And they actually then give space to civil society, or let's say, not necessarily civil society groups, actually the government supported groups uh, such as, various centers, uh, government-supported centers for uh, research into the homeland war, um, into the most recent conflict that actually have a very specific narrative attached to their research. So they'll they'll give space to them to present that bit of the conflict. And actually, what is important here is um, we have to examine the normative environment that prohibits them from doing this. So that prohibits them from promoting the lessons that have been learned from the ICTY. And I think this is a great problem in the region more generally. So why are, let's say, open-minded, positive young people who want to speak to their ethnic others, for example, or want to discuss uh, the past, why are they being prevented from speaking about the conflict? Why are they being prevented from interacting with their ethnic others? And why are they being prevented from sort of getting on with the rebuilding of relationships um, uh, following the conflict?
0: You know, as I'm listening to you speak here, I'm, I'm, I suddenly was thinking of a kind of to borrow, uh, an appropriate, uh, a term from economics. I'm thinking about the term opportunity cost, uh, because in a way, what you're talking about is what is the opportunity cost of a school teacher in Zadar or, uh, Osiek or Karlovac for that teacher, for her to speak up and say what she, um, you know, in, in, Quotation marks really thinks about uh, the homeland war or about the ICTY's findings and and what can be done. Um, of course, to the extent that 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 person does have a more conciliatory and open-minded view of the homeland war, what can be do done uh, and by whom to lessen the opportunity costs which she perceives um, uh, that that speaking up might have. I'm also um you know it's interesting you invoke the notion of of the eu and 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 this notion that if you're more possible positively disposed to say you know wanting to get out in the world travel be part of of a modern europe then all things equal you're probably may be part of of the silent you know we can discuss whether it's a minority or majority uh that that wants to um uh, articulate these things that that you mention. But conversely, you also made me think about uh, some of the members of the Croat diaspora in North America, Australia, also in Europe, of course, where uh, we have some extremely uh, aggressive and nationalist narratives that are still quite dominant. Uh, And to some extent, uh, those, of course, uh, are uh, cost-free in the sense that if you have uh, German and Croatian citizenship or Swedish and Croatian citizenship, then there's essentially very little opportunity cost for you to, and especially if you're living in, in Sweden or Germany to then, uh, propagate these very, very negative, uh, and aggressive narratives, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And th- that's correct. I mean, um, even, even to propagate them, uh, arguably in, in Croatia, um, that there is very little opportunity cost, hmm. whereas uh, the opportunity cost to try to do something different, um, not just as a history teacher. I mean, I think, I think high schools are a brilliant uh, sort of location or site to look at these dynamics. And I think um, something that has informed some of my later research or some of my more recent research uh, has been the work of uh, Azra Kromadzic, um, who looked at flirting in schools in, uh, in Bosnia, Um, and you know, what, what is interesting there is it it becomes very clear that young people just want to have fun with other young people. Mm -hmm. And she examines how they sort of in, you know, in these, um, uh, you know, mixed schools, but sort of the two schools on the one roof, uh, how kids from different ethnicities who technically go to two different schools in the same building, uh, will sort of flirt in the toilets, uh, which are shared. Um, but then, the second they go back to their communities, uh, they're sanctioned for this. So they could never actually go on to, let's say, date, marry, and have a child because it's it's actually almost seen as a child of a mixed uh, uh, marriage is seen as sterile. So here you have this great opportunity cost, like, you know, insane opportunity cost. And I think this is being perpetuated for young people across the region, across any area of life, unfortunately, which makes it very hard for them to speak out or to try to make that move.
0: I haven't asked you whether you're familiar with the uh, 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 series Dairy Girls, which I saw on Netflix, which is precisely about you know uh, young girls in in Northern Ireland in the in the 1990s um, uh, before the Good Friday Agreement and and kind of their um, mischievous, mischievous attitudes uh, towards identity and and what you know certainly the nationalists on both sides would have perceived as as inappropriate, um, uh, fraternization, um, and disregard and disrespect for nationalist narratives. I, I've commented to several of our common colleagues that, that I would look forward to seeing a Croatian or Bosnian version of, of of dairy girls. Um, so uh, I
1: I, I have watched it. I'm a big fan. And, um, and I agree because, um, I think it is spaces like that, that actually hold a lot of potential, to, to change some of these structures and uh, sort of these, some of these norms. Uh, because if we do look at, um, I think in the Balkans, uh, this is really brilliant, is we, we see a hip hop scene uh, mm. that is quite vibrant and that is openly advocating for change. So for example, right. in, in, in Bosnia, there, there was a song that was sort of being shared widely by, uh, by young people uh, that spoke about uh, dating across ethnic lines and, and, and the problems. Um, right? So,
0: and, yeah. And I, I think that's, that's, that's a, a really important thing where, you know, where are, where are these, uh, uh, alternative narratives coming out and, and, as, and, and being propagated. And, and as you know, they're, they're, they're very, very difficult to, uh, particularly when there is this opportunity cost, they remain hidden, um, uh, from public and, and also international view to some extent. And, and, um, And that does make them uh, more uh, difficult. You remind me also of a hip hop song in which the lyrics uh, um, uh, include the words uh, people remember or politicians remember Vukovar only when uh, they need it for elections, right? Uh, These are the kinds of of critical voices. If we move back to the political and and more visible sphere, uh, one thing I wanted to ask you about uh, that has kind of uh, happened to a greater degree since you published your book is that the Serb minority party in Croatia has been really playing a quite prominent role in, in Croatian politics by not only by cooperating with a ruling Croatian democratic union, the, the HDZ, um, uh but um, that has had some effects also on the way the homeland war is being commemorated and the way the government commemorates it. So uh, with respect to that, but just also as an open question, if you had to update your book, um, uh, you know, two, three years after uh, getting it published, is there anything particular you would add or anything that has surprised you or caused you to modify your conclusions?
1: Um, yeah, yeah. So I think um, I, I'm actually less surprised uh, about sort of the, the Serb political or Serb minorities political cooperation with the government. Uh, than I am about how far anti-Serb rhetoric has been allowed to spread or perhaps even become more extreme. Um, And and particularly, if we're talking about modifying my conclusions, particularly since more time has passed since uh, Croatia joined the EU and how that has developed, um, I think it is great, actually, and I think it's significant that we are seeing politicians change the way they commemorate. Uh, I do think that's important. I know sometimes it can seem hollow, but, but certainly, uh, historically, we've seen moments where it has been uh, symbolically significant. Um, but what has been allowed to happen at the same time, this probably speaks to how adept uh, some politicians are in Croatia, especially the prime minister. Um, mm-hmm. I think um, if, if we look at the Hadassé, especially in its current guise, uh, they've always been happy to instrumentalize certain segments of Croatian society, like, like many governments are. Um, and if we look at how well the government fended off the threats from the far right, from the you know, extreme nationalists in the last elections, we actually see how well they can sort of um, navigate the, these waters and appeal to voters from all sides of the, of the spectrum. Um, But what surprised me is actually how extreme this anti-SERB rhetoric has been allowed to go. So we will see in public, less so over the last um, uh, perhaps a year or two, but certainly running up to the elections, uh, truly horrific references, for example, to the rape of Serb women and children. Um, And these are actually hardly sanctioned. They're sanctioned, but not as harshly as you might expect for, given the, the gravity um, of this hate speech, uh, and you know this has occurred in tandem with the increase of, let's say, Ustasha symbols and discourses that are now allowed to exist in more and more parts of Croatian society without any significant sanction as well. So my conclusions are roughly the same, but perhaps I underestimated just how much um, you know prejudice and aggression against the Serbs uh was going to be was going to be allowed to happen after Croatia joined the EU and now that now now that we have this new sort of status quo where segments of society can be vocal about that if they want to
0: right and and I, I think we 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 both know of of several podcasts radio and television programs uh that are particularly egregious in in that respect in in Croatia and of course not just with respect to um uh, keeping uh, the tensions up and uh, uh, propagating uh, uh, hate speech towards Serbs. But of course, this goes hand in hand often with uh, anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, and, and other uh, similar types of, of, of hatred. Um, now, that brings me to a question. You mentioned Clark earlier, uh, but coming to Clark and some of your own conclusions in the book, the the media and and politicians in Croatia, uh, as you just were stating, uh, uh, seem unable to resist the temptation to perpetuate a sense of Croatian victimhood, even three decades uh, after independence. So, do you have any suggestions for how this can be co- uh, countered? And and were you you in your uh, were you able in your research to reach any conclusions about how? reconciliation or modification of nationalist narratives can be better accomplished than it has to has been to date
1: um yeah that, that, that's difficult to say i think i think based on my findings um and certainly uh you know wh- where i've been gone on from there as well uh, I would argue drawing on, as, as Yavarongilov does in, in, in his work on traditional justice, sort of drawing on, and Denisa Kostovitsova as well, um, drawing on Habermasian theories of deliberation, uh, that one way to counter um, the, these sort of almost, uh, you know, uh, homogenous uh, narratives of victimhood that are all pervasive is to allow for a pl- plurality of views. Um so it, it is important that numerous interpretations of the conflict and of Croatian victimhood are allowed to exist. So then it doesn't become a case of countering a narrative of victimhood but of offering alternatives that can shape slightly different narratives. And I think this is important when we talk about reconciliation because there is nothing inherently negative about a sense of Croatian victimhood. Um But it can have negative outcomes on things like minority rights for the Serb community. It can certainly lead, like like we just discussed, to uh, increases in xenophobia against all kinds of different communities. Um, But only if victimhood is interpreted in a very specific way, the way it is done now. So Mm -hmm. what I mean here is that if there's a sense of victimhood at the hands of Serbian aggression, Uh, then that can be negative. But there could also be a sense of victimhood at the hands of opportunist politicians who operated on all sides of the conflict. And that would mean that both Croats and Serbs were, were victims of the same corrupt system. And that would actually humanize the other side. So this is what Joanna Quinn calls sympathy. It would sort of create a sense of understanding of the other. And they could. this could be that very small but significant first step towards uh, what we could term reconciliation, but that would still involve a, a grand narrative of victimhood. It's just not a victimhood that dehumanizes the other, but it's a victimhood that can humanize it instead.
0: Right, and it's also not exclusive and it's also not the uh, sole uh, or hyper-dominant factor in constructing national identity in that case, right?
1: Exactly, exactly that.
0: Yeah. Um, moving towards the end here, um, looking back, uh, I know this is a, a tricky and annoying question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Looking back at your, your research methodology, and, and in fact, the book, a project as a whole, um, is there anything you would have done differently? And, and kind of tied to that, what would you tell colleagues, especially young researchers, if they asked you uh, what related research questions you would like to see explored?
1: Right. Uh, no, I, lo- I love that question. I mean, I think, you know, like, like any writer, the, se- the second uh, you're done, you're already questioning it. And mm-hmm. I, I, I definitely see myself as a methodologist, probably primarily. So um, what would I have done different? There is one a uh, massive difference I, um, I would have made, and I'm, and I'm working on that now in my current project, which is, I think my units of analysis were wrong. Um, and what I mean here is that uh, I think my book is a first step towards a better understanding of how people interact and communicate following conflict. But I think I could have done more to dig deeper into how this communication works. So by using focus groups, uh, commonly focus groups are analyzed by, we look at opinions of individuals and in focus groups, or we look at the opinion of the whole group, but we struggle to actually look at the interactions between individuals and how they construct a concept. And I think narrative analysis was a first step towards that. Um, but I, I, am now working using uh, new methods like conversation analysis that are used more in sociology to actually look at how, uh, these various bits of communication or these sequences of communication are constructed. Uh, so it's not just what is said, but it's how is something said. And this actually allows me to interpret the silences that happen in groups. It allows me to interpret the jokes or the, in particular, the frequent I don't knows. Uh, and these sort of claims the ignorance that we actually see across transitional justice research globally, but that remains completely untheorized. Um, and actually, I've now gone on to conduct focus groups across the Balkans or the former Yugoslavia uh, to study this in more detail. Um, and to, to, to what would I say, to, especially to young researchers um, uh, now? Um, well, the one the one key recommendation I would have is, is to study young people. I think that is key. Um, I think. That I was able to access certain sem- segments of Croatian Society because I had this sort of insider-outsider status. I think as a young scholar, regardless of background, they will have better access to these younger generations who in, in all of our writing on transitional justice, we agree they are crucial to the process's success and to be able to ascertain its success. But we actually understudy it because it's actually very difficult to, to, to speak to young people about this. But people are doing it in, in other fields. And therefore, I would recommend to young scholars, to young researchers to really speak to these newer generations who are coming up and also to look at culture, art, uh, you know, gender and the fringes that have not really been examined yet, but where there is actually a huge amount of potential to learn a lot about transitional justice.
0: Terrific. Uh, and uh, on that note, I am definitely looking forward to uh, hearing more about your research and your future publications. And also, uh, I join with you in, in, in looking forward to seeing other colleagues join in, in, in this endeavor and explore some of those very necessary uh, angles uh, that you just mentioned. Ivor, I, I want to thank you so much for being my guest today in the New Books Network. And I want to close by encouraging guests to read Ivor Sokolic's uh, wonderful book, International Courts and Mass Atrocity Narratives of War and Justice in Croatia, which again was published by Paul Grave Macmillan in 2019. Ivor, thank you so much.
1: Uh, thank you so much, Christian. This is a real pro- pleasure.
0: Thank you, everyone. And until the next podcast, goodbye for now.